Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Hi, everyone. Glad you're here. If you're joining us online, I'm glad you're joining us online. A very special welcome, as always, to my mom, who doesn't miss this uh, She's been tuning in for months and months to the sermons here at Saving Grace Church, and she's spreading the word to her neighbors. So for those of you who are joining us from Homewood in Martinsburg, uh, we're glad that you've, you've joined us this morning. Um, the title, uh, well, the passage, first of all, that we'll be teaching this morning is from Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 19, all the way through chapter 7. The title of the message is called The Better priesthood. If you haven't been following with us or if you're just new here, we've been in a uh, sermon series in Hebrews called Jesus is Better. So we're going to be focusing on Jesus who has the better priesthood today. Now, if you're like me, when you hear the word priest or priesthood, you may think the Catholic Church because when I grew up, I had lots of experiences where I grew up with lots of people who attended the Catholic Church. So when I heard that word priest or priesthood, I thought black suits and a white collar right here in the neck, you know, because that's what all the priests I knew, that's how they dressed. But what we're gonna be talking about today is the priesthood that was established in the Old Testament. And the author of Hebrews is gonna be comparing that priesthood that was established under the law to the much better priesthood that has been established in Jesus. And every time throughout all of Scripture, anytime we're talking about the priesthood, the word that I want you to remember that this is all about is the word access. So if you're a note taker, I want you to write in all capital letters at the top of your notes, access because I don't want you to forget that that's really fundamentally what we're talking about all throughout this morning's sermon. In order to do that, we're gonna look at this passage primarily in Hebrews 7, and we are gonna talk about one of the most enigmatic, mysterious characters in all of scripture. His name is Melchizedek. And if you don't know Melchizedek, if you haven't met him or known about him, you're in for quite a ride. All right, so let's pray, and then we're going to get to it. Lord Jesus, we are thankful to you this morning. You indeed have, as Aidan prayed a bit ago, you have turned our hearts toward you in response because you've opened our eyes to, see, to show us who you are. Lord, we give you thanks for that, and Lord, I ask this morning that you would help me by your Holy Spirit. You've helped us already this morning by your Holy Spirit. I ask, Lord, that you would help me to teach a sermon that is beneficial. Lord, let your words come through this mouth and change people's hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you ready? I want to start by reading the entire passage, and there's a reason I want to do that, okay? So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, I want you to open it to Hebrews 6, starting in verse 19. And if you remember way back from when you were in elementary school, how when you're first learning to read, you traced along with your finger, this might be a good idea, okay? Because this passage is very thick, and it's the kind that you can, as you're hearing it or reading through it, your mind can wander. So let me read this whole thing, 
and you can follow with me the best you can. All right. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Shalem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Shalem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, 
to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, I read that for a couple of reasons in its entirety. The first one is that 1 Timothy 4.13 reminds us that we should devote ourselves to the public reading of the word, among other things. Another reason I read that in its entirety right up front is because I actually, believe it or not, want to save time. And so for the rest of the sermon, I want to just refer back to that in little pieces. So I'm trusting you and asking you to do your homework this week. If you're taking notes, refer back to your notes. Maybe watch the sermon again. But either way, read through that passage. And hopefully it'll make more sense after this sermon, after you hear what the Lord has for you today. But the biggest reason I wanted you to hear that is because I wanted you to feel the way I feel every time I read that, including right now. I have read that passage dozens of times in preparation for today's message. And every time I get to the end, I feel like I just took the math SAT. You know what I mean? Like it's draining. There's so much stuff in there. Do you remember the the far side comic where the kid's sitting in class raising his hand, asking to be excused because his brain is full, right? That's how I feel after reading that passage. And, And it's okay if you feel that way because there's a ton of stuff in there. And it's all centered, well, it's really centered around Jesus, but a lot of it is talking about this mysterious character called Melchizedek. If you have done any searches on the internet, any research, any kind of thing, you know, looked for things to find out more about Melchizedek, you would probably agree with me that it's pretty easy to go down all kinds of rabbit trails and read all kinds of theories, and some of them are really bizarre, like rivaling the craziest conspiracy theories you've ever heard. Most of these rabbit trails tend to be focused on who Melchizedek really is. People seem to not be satisfied with just calling him Melchizedek. Like he must be someone else who's elsewhere in the Bible. Three of the most common identities that are associated with Melchizedek, if we don't just settle on the fact that he's Melchizedek, is he's possibly Shem, one of the three sons of Noah. That's one of the theories that's out there. Another one is that he's Michael, the archangel, and he appears to Abram as this character Melchizedek. Another one, and this was super popular, is that he's actually Jesus himself, that he's an early appearance in the Old Testament of Jesus. That's called a Christophany. But I don't want it to get us hung up on that topic, okay? If you want to go looking for that later, you'll, you can spend lots and lots of time. I don't want to get hung up on who this Melchizedek is today because I think it steers us away and causes us to miss the real point. Let me, to show you what I mean, let me ask you a, a seemingly unrelated question. This is a real question. You can shout out the answer. How many days, at the beginning of Genesis, how many days did it take the Lord to create everything? Six days, right? He created everything in six days, rested on the seventh day. Now, my follow-up question is, was it six 24-hour days or was it something else? The reality is, I don't know and you don't know when we don't know for sure in the midst of all of these theories that 
are out there, I go with what the scripture says. It's six days, so I'm going to say six days. But I wasn't there. I don't know what it was. But what I can tell you for 100% sure is that over the last 40 plus years that I've known the Lord, I've never woken up one day and thought, I can't walk with Jesus today because I don't know if it was six 24-hour days or something else. That has never prevented me from walking with the Lord. Not saying it's not important. I'm sure it's important and has application to something that could be eye-opening in some crazy way, but it doesn't prevent me from walking with the Lord today. And I think it's kind of the same thing with the identity of Melchizedek. I think it can draw us away from what the Lord is really trying to show us that will help us walk with him today. Now, we can't ignore him. We got to deal with his character. And in order to see him appropriately, we have to be able to think the way the author of Hebrews is thinking. You may remember from the very beginning of this series that we established that Hebrews, we don't know who exactly wrote it, but we do know that the author is Jewish and he's writing to a Jewish audience. And so we, I don't think that's true of any of us in here, okay? We're, we're not a Jewish audience. I don't think anyone in here has a background in Judaism. I could be wrong about that. But for the most part, we're not familiar with that. And so it would be helpful to understand how a Jewish scholar, especially in that time, would think. And I find this very, very interesting. Jewish scholars, perhaps even today, I don't know if that's true or not, but at least at this time, when they encountered a passage of scripture to interpret, they had four ways of interpreting that passage. And they would sit down and they would go through each one of these strategies as they were figuring out what scripture was saying. The first one was called Peshat. And Peshat is the literal and factual meaning of the text. So you read the text, what is it saying? What is the face value of what this passage is saying? The second one is called Remaz. And that's what is the suggested meaning or what is it implying? What can we what can we learn? The, the passage is saying this exactly on its face value, but what other areas of life is that going to affect because of what I'm seeing in this passage? What does it imply? The third one cracks me up. It's called Darush, and it's the meaning after long and careful investigation. All right, so you sit down with it, you see what it means on its surface, you see what it implies for other areas, and then you take time, and you think, and you process, and you pray and you see what the Lord reveals to you as you're meditating on this passage. Now, those three all sound like a really good idea, right? Like th that would be great advice for how we should approach Scripture. And I hope that you all do that. The fourth one is something else. It's called sod. And it means the allegorical or hidden meaning, which when we talk about that doesn't seem like that's such a big deal. But here's Here's what we need to know. To the Jewish scholar of that day, this was the most important of the four strategies. And it resulted in sometimes applying a meaning to text that was wildly out of context and drawing conclusions that were kind of crazy. It, Jewish scholars would use this technique to not only draw conclusions from what Scripture says, but from what it didn't say. So if something was left out, they would say, well, if it didn't address this, then it must mean this. 
In our modern days, you may have heard the words exegesis versus eisegesis. Those are some big words. But exegesis just generally means we go to Scripture and we look to see what it says. What is Scripture telling us? Let's draw meaning from the text. Eisegesis means you go to Scriptures with an idea and you try to see how Scriptures can prove your idea right, which is not a good way of of handling it. But this is what sod often caused Jewish scholars to do. And I think, are you ready for this? I think this is in part what the writer of Hebrews is doing when he encounters Melchizedek. You may disagree, and that's okay. We can talk about it later. But you might be thinking, wait a second. Does that mean that the author of Hebrews is somehow being deceptive? Or this stuff is maybe not trustworthy? Or maybe scripture is incorrect or in error? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is the people of this time thought about these things differently than we do. And we got to wrap our minds around how they thought about this stuff. And what the author, I think, is doing is he's using this strategy to kind of demonstrate in this like nuanced picture of Melchizedek what is absolutely, literally, 100% true about Jesus. Nothing's stretched in this passage as it applies to Jesus. Everything that the author says about Jesus and the meaning that he draws and points to Jesus is 100% true. But to get there, he's demonstrating it with some kind of stretchy things about Melchizedek. And I think you'll see what I mean. Let me first of all introduce you to who this guy is. If you've never heard this name before, or you don't know where it comes from, he only shows up in Scripture three times. The first time is in Genesis 14, the second time is in the Psalms, and the third time is here in Hebrews 7. So in Genesis 14, it says this. This is uh, Abram before he became Abraham, and he is returning from a victorious battle. And it says this, starting in verse 17 of Genesis 14. After his return from the defeat of Ketolaimer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Shalem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So that's the first time, Genesis 14. The second time is King David speaking well, it's God speaking through King David, and he's speaking of the coming Messiah in Psalm 110. And it says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then we, of course, jump to the passage in Hebrews 7 that we're going to look at in more detail today. Using those two passages, the author of Hebrews is going to start drawing this comparison of why the priesthood of Jesus is the better priesthood than has ever been seen before. And the first point I'd like to make as we draw out this text is this. The priesthood of Jesus 
is not based on lineage. The priesthood of Jesus is not based on lineage. The author of Hebrews is going to use this mysterious Melchizedek and draw comparisons between the priesthood of Jesus and the priesthood of the Levites. That's that Old Testament priesthood I was talking about at the beginning, often referred to as the Levitical priesthood. It was established in the book of Exodus when the law was given to the people of Israel from God through Moses. Many of you may remember that we studied through Exodus just about a year ago and learned about the establishment of the priesthood in the law. And remember how I said I, I often think of like black suits and white collars. This kind of priest would look more like this. All right, this is based on the description in Exodus of a Levitical priest. This is what a priest in that time would have looked like. Can you imagine dressing like that for work every day? All right, notice the robes and the bare feet and the gemstones on his chest and the turban and the intricately woven garments. All of these things are described in great detail in the book of Exodus, but that's what we're talking about. And for this priest or any other priest that was a Levitical priest, lineage was everything. These priests had to be a descendant of Aaron, who was the first priest. Listen to this. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 1, 2, and 5, it says this. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. So the people of Israel are taken out of Egypt. Eventually they make it to the promised land. The land is divided up into all these different portions and given out to the different sons of Israel. But Levi does not receive any real estate. He gets the priesthood. And if you were not of the tribe of Levi there was no possible way that you could ever become a priest. There was no chance. You had to be from the tribe of Levi. And if you were specifically a man from the tribe of Levi, there was nothing that could prevent you from being a priesthood. Character didn't matter. If you are a, a male in the, in the tribe of Levi, you had the correct lineage, you could be a priest. But Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He is from the tribe of Judah. So how is he a priest at all? Well, the author of Hebrews addresses this in verses 13 through 16 of Hebrews 7. He says this, For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. The priesthood of Jesus was established with nothing to do with the law. 
There was no legal requirement for Jesus to become a priest. It was all on merit alone, his merit. There's something about the character of Jesus, this characteristic called an indestructible life that is the basis for his priesthood. And we can see that truth, that 100% true statement about Jesus, we can see it in the life of Melchizedek. How do we see it? Check this out. This is where things get a little stretchy. In Hebrews 7.3, the beginning of that, that verse, it says, speaking of Melchizedek, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Well, doesn't that sound like he's just always existed? He's without father or mother. He must have just always been. But remember, Jewish scholars applied this technique and to, to come to a meaning that may not be like that specific. Like it's, he's trying to draw a point and draw a picture about Jesus and he's using Melchizedek to do it. What I think he means instead is that there's no recorded genealogy of Melchizedek. You can search all through Genesis and you're not gonna find so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat Melchizedek begat so It's not there. There's no recorded evidence of his genealogy. And so using this technique sod, the conclusion is, well, if he doesn't have a genealogy, if we don't know who his father and mother was, he must not have a father and mother. But the real point that he's trying to make about Jesus is that lineage means nothing. Lineage meant nothing for Melchizedek to become a high priest. We don't exactly know how he became a high priest, but we know it has nothing to do with lineage. And so it must have been some sort of inherent merit or characteristic that Abram recognized. And that picture literally applies to our great high priest, Jesus, by merit alone, because of his sinless life, because of his perfection, he inhabits the better priesthood. He has an indestructible life. Both of these, the priesthood of Melchizedek, the priesthood of Jesus, are both better than the Levitical priesthood that was established completely based on lineage. So what does that mean for us today? Remember, I hope you're seeing it. I asked for that word to never leave the wall, access throughout this morning. I want you to remember that we're talking about access. What does that mean for your access? Well, here's what it means. It means if you are saved, if you have put your trust in Jesus for salvation, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. It doesn't matter what your family history is. It doesn't matter what you look like. It does not matter whether you are a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, male or female, your access is the same. You have been given access to God Most High. Amen? Here's the second point. The priesthood of Jesus does not end. Here's a true statement that we know about Jesus from Romans 6. This is the Apostle Paul. He says this, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
All right, his heart beats for those of you who know that song, okay? Jesus continues forever, but does his priesthood, does his priesthood con continue forever? Well, let's go back to Hebrews 7, the same verse. Hebrews 7, verse 3, the second half of it says this, having neither, this is talking about Melchizedek, by the way, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, it's easy to read that and think, well, if he has no beginning of days or end of life, he has to be, Melchizedek has to be some kind of, of deity. But I, I don't believe that he is. Remember, the author is taking some liberties here to demonstrate that Melchizedek, to demonstrate in Melchizedek something that is literally true about Jesus. When he says that Melchizedek has no beginning of days or end of life, I think what he means here is that there is no recorded evidence of his beginning of life or end of days. Now, this is different than a genealogy. How many people remember from uh, Genesis, there are these passages where it'll say something like this. Uh, Adam lived 130 years and then Seth was born to him. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. And then Adam lived another 813 years and he died. And Seth lived 117 years and his son so-and-so was born. I don't remember. And Seth lived another 795 and a half years and he died, right? You remember those passages? And it goes detailed through all of these years. None of that exists for Melchizedek. There's no evidence of when he was born and when he died. It does not exist. He comes out of nowhere. So the conclusion, using this technique sod, is if there is no start and end date, then there must not be a start and end date, which may not be actually true of Melchizedek, but it is true of Jesus. He's painting a picture through this character called Melchizedek to show something that's literally true of Jesus. Now, how does this apply to the Levitical priesthood? Where's the comparison? The author addresses that in Hebrews 7, 23 through 24. He says, the former priests, the Levitical priests, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So this truth of Jesus that he continues forever is seen reflected in the priesthood of Melchizedek. What does that mean for your access? What does that mean for your access? Well, here's what I think it means in a very practical level. If you have put your trust in Jesus, it does not matter if you are four years old or 94 years old. You have access. It doesn't matter if you have much life ahead of you or very little, and none of us know how much is ahead of us, right? Your access will not ever run out because Jesus, the priesthood of Jesus continues permanently. That's extremely encouraging <laughs> that it's not gonna end. We're not gonna be left hanging. Amen? Number three. The third way that the priesthood of Jesus is better. The priesthood of Jesus demonstrates his right to be worshiped. Now, I struggled a little bit with what to call this third point because the passages about Melchizedek don't mention worship. 
But I did, what I'm really addressing here is this issue of Abram giving him a tithe. And I didn't want to like put tithing in the title because I didn't want you to think I was talking about like giving to the church. That's maybe for another time. But we're not talking about giving to the church right now. You guys do that very generously. We're talking about Abram's response when he met this Melchizedek. And scriptures say at the end of that passage in Genesis 14, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. To tithe or tithing, it's what it actually literally means. It means to give a tenth of what you have. And so Abram was on his way back from this victorious battle and he has all of this stuff, all of this spoils of war. And he meets Melchizedek and there's this other king there too, the king of Sodom. And he gives his tenth to Melchizedek. And immediately following that, I didn't read this part, but immediately following that, the king of Sodom makes an offer to Abram. He, Abram has the opportunity to take a portion for himself and he refuses it. So he gives his tenth to Melchizedek. He refuses the portion that was offered to himself. Now file that away in your head a minute. Let's go to the Levitical priests. It says this in Numbers 18, to the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. I hope this doesn't come across as like a political statement. I don't mean it to. I just, it seemed like a good analogy to me. The Levitical priests kind of remind me of the government, all right? Because the Levites did not have a land. They did not have resources. They weren't producing. There was no wealth or economic stability that was coming from their own space, their own doings. Instead, their wealth or economic stability, for lack of a better term, was coming from the tithing. It was kind of reminds you of taxes, right, to the government. So that's, that's how they were sustained and provided for. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm sure there are many people who are very happy to, to do that, to fulfill that law, to pay that tithe. There are probably some who weren't, but either way, it happened because a law was established that required the people of Israel to tithe. In a manner of speaking, they were forced to do it, okay? Now, for a good reason, the Levitical priests were the only way to have access to God. The rest of the the rest of the people of Israel had to come to the Levitical priests if they wanted access to God. So the service that they provided for the people was an absolutely necessary one, and it was a full-time job. But for Melchizedek and the priesthood of Melchizedek, there was no such law. There was no law. The law was a long way from arriving in Genesis 14. There was no law that required anyone to give him anything. So when Abram meets him and tithes, gives him a tenth, it's without the requirement of the law. It's without any connection to a people group. Melchizedek was not part of the tribe of Israel. The tribe of Israel did not yet exist. That as far as we know, there's no like shared heritage. Abram and Melchizedek, as far as we know, were not related. Remember that at this time, Abram was kind of on the move, like he was in a new land. He, was, he would have felt like a foreigner in a new land. And this would have been like meeting a complete stranger. There was something about 
Melchizedek, when Abram met him, that caused his response to be one of, I need to give this person something. I need to give him a tithe. One commentator I, I, I read about this moment in Genesis 14 said, Melchizedek didn't need a law to give him the right to collect a tithe. He had the right. He just had it. And this picture of Melchizedek demonstrates something completely true about Jesus. Listen to this. The character and inherent worth of Jesus turns our hearts in response that is not a legal requirement, but instead a worshipful position of our hearts. When we see Jesus for who he is, he turns our hearts in a response of worship, not because we're made to by any law, but because our eyes are opened to see who he is and what he's done. It reminds me a lot of what the people of Israel did in Exodus when they first found out that the Lord was gonna deliver them from Egypt. Moses and Aaron show up, say, hey, guess what? The Lord has seen your plea. He's gonna deliver you from Egypt. Here are the signs to prove it. We're not making this up. And in Exodus 4.31, it says, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. That's what the Lord does to our hearts. So on one hand, you've got a worshipful response, a response to the character and qualities of Jesus. And on the other hand, you've got a priesthood that people have a response because it's required by law. The first is much better. What does that mean for our access? It means that just like this passage says, we should draw near. We should draw near. And we draw near in a posture of humility and worship because Jesus is worthy to be praised. Amen. Last point, fourth point, the priesthood of Jesus is established by an oath. The priesthood of Jesus is established by an oath. This final point does not come from Genesis 14. It comes from the passage in Psalm 110. This is the Lord speaking through David and speaking of Jesus. He says this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We've established lots of times today that the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical priests held that office of priesthood because of a law. We know that Melchizedek did not hold his office because of a law, because the law didn't exist. But Jesus holds his office, his priestly office, for a reason that is far more profound. Far more profound. Listen to this. I'm going to jump around in the passage a little bit. So if you're following along, this is Hebrews 7, 11, and then 20 through 22. So watch out. It goes like this. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Let me pause. In other words, why did we need a new priesthood if the old one was good enough? Well, the answer was the old one wasn't good enough. We needed something better. And speaking of this new priesthood, it says this going on, and it was not without an oath. 
For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest. This Jesus was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So God swore an oath. He swore an oath. Do you realize that God does not have to swear any oaths? He doesn't have to. Every word that he speaks carries the weight and purity of complete truth. There's no reason for him to need to speak an oath, to swear an oath. So why did he? Well, to find the answer, we got to go back a chapter. This is something that Joe taught last week in verse 17 of chapter six. It says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he, can, he guaranteed it with an oath. He, swear, he does not swear lightly, but when he swears an oath, it's because he desires to show us something more convincingly. The establishment of Jesus as holding a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek must be so significant, so uniquely and utterly important that God would condescend to be willing to swear an oath that he does not need to swear in order to convince us that it's true. That's, that's like huge, <laughs> that God would do that for us. For us, it's unbelievable. He did it to convince us. What does that mean for your access? Well, the priesthood of Jesus, the priesthood of Jesus that was established by this oath is absolutely necessary. It is 100% necessary for you to even have salvation in the first place. And it's 100% necessary for you to walk with him daily. It's absolutely necessary. And I think this is why it meant so much to God to convince us that this is true, that Jesus' priesthood is the better priesthood. Here's what it has to do with access. So far in this passage, here's what we can see about Jesus in the life of Melchizedek. Now, some of these things I covered today in, in the points, some of them you're gonna have to look into more as you do your homework this week, but check this out. This is what we learned from this passage. Jesus is the king of righteousness. The name Melchizedek literally need, means my king is righteousness. Jesus is the king of peace. Do you remember what Melchizedek was the king of? He was the king of Shalem, or probably lots of times like I have, have just read that Salem, which is fine. But I heard some people pronouncing it Shalem and I thought that sounded cool. So we went with that. All right. Shalem, that literally means he's the king of peace. Jesus is the king of peace. Jesus has established a new priesthood. We see that in Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. His priesthood was established by God's oath, an oath that God did not have to swear, but he wanted to convince us. His priesthood is based on merit, not law, not lineage. His priesthood lasts forever. There's no place in time 
that it ever ends or misses a beat or it has a gap. It continues forever. And the best, the absolute best thing ever is this. His priesthood was established by not offering animals on an altar. He offered himself the absolute perfect sacrifice. He is the priest who offered himself for us. All of this, all of those points establish that big yellow underlined word, access. Access into God's presence. First of all, right now at this moment as we sit here in February of 2022, our our great high priest, King Jesus, is in the presence of God Most High. He's in the presence of God Most High. Now, Please hear me when I say this. If, if you, and it's okay, I know this is a lot of thick stuff today. If your brain checked out a little bit, a little while ago, brain got full. Maybe you worked late last night. Maybe you stayed at a friend's house and stayed up too late. <laughs> um, if you don't hear anything else, hear this, okay? Our salvation is grounded not in our ability to persevere. Our salvation is not grounded in our ability to persevere. Should you persevere? Yes. Should you strive to persevere? Yes. Should you diligently seek the Lord and obey his commandments? Yes. Absolutely yes. But when you stumble and fall, and you will, and I have many, many times, you can rest in the fact that your salvation is not grounded in your ability to be perfect. But rather, your salvation is grounded in the power of the eternal high priest, our King Jesus, our Savior. Amen? If you need proof of that, look at what the author of Hebrews says in verse 25. He says this, Consequently, he is able, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. You persevere and you persevere and you persevere and you stumble and Jesus is there to make intercession for you. Here's what else it means. Not only is Jesus in the presence of the most high God, but you can draw near to the presence of the Most High God. You may draw near to God because you have been given access. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light out of darkness and into light to become a royal because you're a member of the family of God if you've trusted in Jesus for your salvation and you are in a priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. And what do priests have? Access. You have access to God. And there's another way that you have access to God. And it's, we've said it so many times You've heard it so many times, but it's okay. You've probably forgotten it a bunch of times too. I forget it regularly. We go through our days and we, we have this amazing thing 
that's happening all the time and we forget to realize it. And that is, you have the Holy Spirit of God in you as a believer. You walk around day to day with the presence of God in you. Ezekiel 36 verses 26 through 27 says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He promised that in Ezekiel. He accomplished it in Jesus. So if you've trusted in Jesus, you spend every moment of the rest of your life with the presence of God inside of you. That's mind-blowing. <laughs> That's mind-blowing every time we say it. I'm going to finish up today. I'm going to have the band come up and we're going to do something slightly differently than we've done in the past. I'm going to invite, as the band is coming up, I'm also going to invite the prayer team to come up when we start singing this last song. So prayer team, be ready to come up. As we say every week, if you would like prayer for anything, anything, please do not hesitate to come forward and allow us to pray with you and for you. But especially, we, we talked a lot today about access to God. And if you have not, if this is new material for you, or maybe it's old material, but you've never acted on it. If you do not know Jesus as your savior, let me assure you that he is able to save you to the uttermost, it says, to the uttermost. Don't let another minute go by without knowing him. You can come up and have prayer. You can meet with one of us or from right where you are, you can call out to him. He hears you. All right, for those of you who know Jesus, let me just leave you with this. We've, a couple of weeks ago, Joe taught a message and kind of the main point of the message was hold fast, draw near. Remember that? Hold fast and draw near. I hope that as you leave today, I hope these words resonate in your heart, that because of the priesthood of Jesus, because of the access that you have been given, you can hold fast. You can hold fast. But when you don't, you can draw near for forgiveness because you have a great high priest who lives forever to intercede for you. Amen? That's true. That's true. I pray that you'll believe it. Let's pray right now, and then we're going to sing. Why don't you stand with us? Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that your priesthood is the better priesthood, that you accomplished for us what the law never could. Father, we thank you that not only did you, did you do it, but you did it by your own blood. You shed your own perfect blood for us. And so, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name that people who are hearing these words who have not yet been saved would be saved right now, that their hearts would be changed miraculously, and that their cry for the rest of all of eternity would be in thankfulness to a holy God. Lord, we give you thanks for this, and we ask that you would help us as we go out of this place. In Jesus' name, amen.